0: Welcome back to Compound Thesis. Our guest today is Lesia Marchenko, and she's the head of Institutional at J.K.L. Group. Hey, Lesia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me here today.
0: Yeah, super excited. So today we're going to explore J.K.L.'s new proprietary AI-powered crypto trading strategies, the latest Web3 trends in Hong Kong, and the potential for Asia to lead the next bull market. So let's start on that part first. So lately, it feels like Despite all of the macro news recently, that's kind of shifted the narrative. But it feels like you know everybody's been saying that the next bull market is going to start from the east. Do you agree or disagree with this sentiment, and why?
1: So I, uh, quite ironically, I have first heard that narrative when I've been on the latest business trip in the U.S. I've never had that heard that narrative before uh, here in Hong Kong. Um, I do understand where it's stemming from, but it's important to understand. Uh, where the Asia capital is flowing from first. So if we talk about China capital suddenly entering the crypto market, that's probably not the case. The latest regulations that have been introduced in Hong Kong, uh, some people believe they will be able to open this magical funnel for China capital to flow into exchanges, into the crypto industry. And uh, the reality is that all China mainland China capital has to get a permission um, to move the money out of the country and into Hong Kong. And the new Hong Kong regulation does not increase this channel in any way. So it does not broaden, widen the channel. It does not give any additional permission for mainland capital to get authorization, to get moved out of uh, the country. What regulation is important for is for giving more trust uh, to users in using these virtual asset trading platforms. However, the regulation did exist in Hong Kong. All The crypto regulation in Hong Kong has existed. So uh, we actually have already two firms that are fully licensed by the SFC, the Hong Kong Financial Regulation, that is OSL, um, they got their uh, license back in December 2020. And then there is Hashkey that you've actually spoken to in your latest videos. So Hashkey has received their uh, license last year, end of last year. Um, this is a license for virtual asset service platforms and is regulated under type 1 and uh, type 7, if I'm not mistaken. So the broker uh, dealing in securities um license and the automated trading services license so just that already shows us that regulation did exist those users those players that wanted to be regulated they did have uh, channels to get regulated in Hong Kong, even before this latest um, regulation was introduced, so the the new the really innovation regulatory wise here is that now suddenly trading platforms exchanges have the right to uh, get licensed in Hong Kong and potentially. Uh, show more trust to users uh in using crypto assets will this open will it will this unlock a new inflow of capital into the crypto space probably not as much as we would want to see because people who are trading on crypto exchanges are already crypto people they Mm -hmm. they are already deploying their capital into crypto so it's not really it's not exactly like you are opening a new channel to multi-billion dollar institutions or large compliance-bound entities. On the other hand side, what might potentially add fuel to, 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 to the fire and what might potentially open up a new pool of capital would be these brokerage platforms, traditional brokerage platforms opening up to crypto, like we have seen in the U.S. So if Asia follows the U.S. path from the previous bull run, for sure there is a potential of new capital entering the market so what we've seen in 2020 and 2021 um, in the us we've seen robinhood we've seen uh, the grayscale trust ib starting to offer crypto assets on their platforms and then suddenly all the traditional investors all the traditional institutional investors got access to this absolutely new alternative um investment class if this happens on brokerage, traditional brokerage platforms in Hong Kong it does have a potential to open up new assets. But the current virtual asset uh, trading platform license is not really targeted at brokerage per se. The the primary goal of this license is to regulate the crypto exchanges. However, if you read the regulation, it does say that the government might consider opening up uh, or building out the regulatory environment for other players in the market, which we would hope would be these uh, brokerage platforms.
0: Well, it's positive, I guess, to see, you know, engagement from the regulators and providing some clarity, Absolutely. Um, whether it's, you know, going to unlock a tremendous amount of capital at this stage is remains to be seen, at least from your, your point of view, um, which is definitely helpful to better understand. But like you mentioned, you know, Fidelity's new digital asset trading uh, business actually launched uh, kind of in stealth a little bit over the last few weeks. And now if you go onto your brokerage account, you can buy uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, through that platform and so those types of venues will certainly unlock a lot of adoption here in the US but the fact that um, there's lacking regulation I think keeps people on the sidelines from building those types of channels uh, versus in Hong Kong it seems like there's more clarity that's being developed and more interaction with the regulators, um, that will hopefully, you know, create new channels of opportunity, which will then unlock and and to your point, you know, those institutions that have already found this asset class interesting have been able to register and or get exposure to this this space. But there's more that has to be developed in order to unlock traditional pools of capital to allocate towards this.
1: Absolutely. And and just to build on that, just to add one more phrase to this topic, it, it also comes at a time when US is massively Cracking down on crypt. every bull run, there is some con- contextual aspect to why this bull run happened. So in the context that the U.S. is actually tightening its regulatory policy around crypto, is closing crypto native banks, and in general is seeming to have taken a more of a tighter stance on crypto industry. At that same time, Hong Kong opening up the regulation to regulate crypto exchanges might be another catalyst. Uh, to, to unlock the, the Asian market for crypto players. So we are talking here about large international exchanges getting licensed in Hong Kong. We are already looking at least at two right now that have uh, moved their headquarters uh, to Hong Kong, opening offices uh, here, setting up bays in Hong Kong. And uh, that, might be, that, that might be the case that we will be seeing in the next few years.
0: Well, it's an exciting time to be sitting where you're sitting uh, in Hong Kong. And, and, you know, just before we jumped on, you mentioned that you were at, the wow, the Web3 Summit uh, out in Hong Kong. Can you just talk through, you know, some of the insights that you learned or some trends that are emerging from your conversations, either at the show or, or what you've been seeing from your network over the last you know, few months?
1: Absolutely. I really love attending these large international conferences within crypto because you do get to learn a lot. So the WOW Summit was I I was amazed at the number of international participants that flew into Hong Kong for the summit. I think Hong Kong is a beautiful, sweet spot where capital and projects are um, where you can find both. Uh, unlike some conferences where it's mostly either projects looking for capital you know or more like industry specific like mining specific conferences or nft specific conferences here you have the golden mix in terms of which early stage projects are building in hong kong there's clearly a difference between western world the the us and uh, asia in that in the us i'm seeing a lot of like infrastructure projects being built. You have a lot of layer ones, layer two is coming up. You have these zk roll-ups, the scalability solutions, et cetera. Um, in Hong Kong, we have a lot of those projects as well, but I think the space generally is dominated by interactive platforms. So Web3 social platforms, Web3 gaming platforms. So there's a lot of tokenization projects as well that I have spoken to. And... Uh, you know how each conference, there's a dominating number of projects that show you that the space is changing? For me, that was tokenization projects. So I have met um, quite a few founders that are working on tokenizing, in particular, government bonds, which is a no-brainer, right? I actually had someone, for a friend of mine from traditional finance, ask me, does USDT pay any dividend? And of course, the answer is No. And they could not understand. We're like, why not? They're they're making so much money on T-bills, just holding them in in their treasuries. So in Hong Kong, you do have projects that are fully asset backed. That are fully backed by U.S. Treasuries, uh, and they, on top of that, they do pay, pay the yield.
0: Are you seeing so tokenization can be a pretty broad category, right? Like we're seeing in the U.S., has been a couple of projects that have tokenized like houses and done mortgages on chain. There's been some, you know, folks that are looking at U.S. Treasuries and um, other types of financial assets, whether it's you know shares in a private equity fund, uh, like we're seeing out of the Hamilton Lane folks. Um, are there any particular areas outside of just like bonds or those categories that I mentioned that you saw that are gaining a lot of traction?
1: Absolutely. I think, um, I think there's like two aspects, so we can, we can call it all non-fungible tokens, right? Like everyone, everyone thinks NFTs are TFPs, but it's so much more than that. You can tokenize any asset, um, the benefits of tokenization. The first but number one benefit of tokenization is fractionalization. The fact that you can access a much broader pool of investors by fractionalizing. And that's what we have seen in, in all those uh, multi-billion corporations that I think KKR last year, they tokenized yep. their 4 billion health funds to benefit from fractionalization. I have seen a few uh, real estate uh, tokenization projects here in Hong Kong. Uh, There's also a lot of platforms that are being built to service this tokenized future, right? So um, the the thought process behind this is that World Economic Forum, for example, there is a quote um, that they're projecting that up to 10% of global GDP will be tokenized by 2030, which I personally think is a little bit is a little bit inflated as a figure. Uh, But it's not only tokenization projects that will be spanning out it's also projects that are servicing this tokenized future so you will need to build like you mentioned mortgages right you will need to build, more, provide mortgages for these tokenized assets you will need to provide fractionalization markets for these tokenized assets you will need to build a whole like tokenized assets are virtual assets that have a value assigned to them so why not develop a derivatives market around them um, why not provide lending platforms like to, to fuel more liquidity into the tokenization space? So one of the projects actually we are developing in-house, well incubating, so we are the early investors is tokenization lending platform. So it's a protocol um, fully on chain, so smart contract based protocol, which is providing liquidity to tokenized assets and the protocol is permissionless so we the project is looking forward to the tokenized future and uh, looking to provide liquidity for any for any tokenized asset out there so the 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 platform itself has a risk framework that assigns a specific risk metric to every tokenized asset and accepts it as a collateral and provides liquidity in exchange i think I personally think that's definitely the way the future will work out because as we've seen a lot of, as we've heard a lot of uh, traditional finance um, pioneers say blockchain, not crypto, which Mm -hmm. obviously is, I personally do not agree with that phrase. And I think the crypto community generally quite dislikes the phrase, but the idea of the phrase is also that blockchain just makes so much sense. And it's the technology that's here to stay and tokenized future is actually more blockchain, not crypto.
0: So I know we just kind of jumped into what's going on in Asia, but we haven't we haven't kind of talked about a little bit of background on J.K.L. and yourself. So you, you've got an interesting path uh, from some of the largest global brands like LVMH, if not the biggest global brand out there prior to joining J.K.L. Like what made you switch into Web3 in the digital asset space? And can you give a little bit of background on J.K.L. Group?
1: Great. Of course, of course. I I would start explaining what J.K.L. does and then how it kind of ties into my personal story. So right now it's a global digital asset group, uh, which has two main business lines, J.K.L. Mining, which is... The the mining arm of the business and JKL Capital, which is the financial arm of the of the business. So, on JKL Mining is quite a recent business. It has been launched in June, twenty twenty one. Pretty much after China cracked down on mining, we started exploring ways to get into to relocate Asian miners into the U.S. But also just started looking at the space uh, more for, for. for ourselves, for our own benefit. On the J.K.L. Capital side, we have asset management business, which does quant trading. Uh, We have a lending platform, an OTC desk, and some venture effort. I originally started on J.K.L. Capital side. So J.K.L. Capital existed way before J.K.L. Mining did. And my previous experience was in corporate finance at Bulgari brand of LVMH. And then before that, I had been in cash management at a, a, a European bank so coming corporate finance when jkl asset management service launched uh the founders lynn and jy were looking for someone who specifically with corporate finance expertise because they didn't need they 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 didn't have the need for anyone who's like massively degen and crypto or like DeFi background they needed someone to come in and build out the reporting build out the budgeting for the firm um so i joined as investor relations first uh my main goal was to to onboard clients, withdraw clients, do all the capital flow management, reporting, making sure we provide weekly, monthly communication. Um, and that had expanded. So the founders started deploying, uh, built out the landing platform. So we were introducing those uh, projects to the clients, um, built out the venture effort, which is all fully proprietary. So uh, talking to early stage projects, uh, helping find the deal flow, sourcing these projects. Since I had started at the firm and what I do today, uh, the the, the primary tasks have been very dynamic and are completely different to to what it was in the beginning. At the same time, I, I would never have it the other way. At this time, every time there is a new project. So like, for example, recently we have been setting up a mining fund which mm-hmm. is pretty much a low-hanging fruit for us, given that we have the mining and capital business just merged two together. And, and with it comes the requirements to build out the valuation, again, like from the expertise that comes in from my previous roles. So building out the valu- valuations for this mining business, budgeting exercise, the reporting to the LPs. It, it, it was quite a natural flow, I would say, even though just looking at the background, it might not seem so.
0: Yeah, every business needs some standard FP&A work. Um, but it's good that you wore many different hats. And that's typically the case in a fast moving business like we're both in. Um, so that's interesting. So can you let's go dive into the uh, the asset management side a little bit. So, you know, can you talk a little bit uh, about how you guys, you know, manage capital on that front and the types of investors that you work with? Sure, sure.
1: So our main investors historically have been family offices and high net worth individuals. That's what we focus on. In the recent years, we've also seen an inflow of capital from crypto native firms, or those firms that offer some kind of uh, staking yield to their client. This is due to the nature of our strategies. One is market-neutral arbitrage. The other directional strategy. Uh, our directional strategy has actually quite uh, tight stop-loss limits. The stop-loss is uh, the maximum stop-loss of our directional strategy is 15%, and we're targeting a 15% uh, annualized return. So uh, it's it's not exactly those uh, all-in highly leveraged strategies. We we do not deploy leverage on either of strategies. Hence our base, which is quite risk-averse and
0: returns. Yeah,
1: <laughs> traditional, exactly, looking for sustainable returns. And this is also where mining actually ties in because on the mining end, we, we found this amazing asset class, which works well for risk-averse investors who want to have a foot in the door who want to have some exposure to crypto but do not want to have direct exposure to the volatility uh, in the crypto space we are building hosting facilities so it's not exactly we're not exactly in the business of self-mining we're in the business of building out hosting facilities so we have the locations we have the electricity contracts uh, we build out the data center and then we onboard our our clients our miners our firms that own mining rigs that come in and plug in their mining grids into our uh, facilities. So hosting business is actually a very stable cash flow generating business, which does have some level of exposure to the crypto industry. But at the same time, the underlying does not carry the excessive beta of, of the crypto space. Um, so the mining fund we're building out offers exactly that. We're, we're offering to run the mining operations for clients and then redistribute profits by the end. So basically it's an investment for those, for those investors who are interested to get into crypto industry, potentially interested to get into mining, but do not want to get into the whole operating. So do not want to get into container shipping, building out, getting electricity contracts, operating. We, we would be able to do all that for them.
0: Yeah, it sounds like more of a traditional real estate finance business. Or, Absolutely. Yeah, you just happen to be, you know, your tenants, Happen to yes. be mining Bitcoin and, you know, percent. OK, got it. But there's certainly a lot of operational overhead that comes and comes with that and a lot of scale that you can probably bring to the table, which allows your tenants or, you know, your your clients that are operating in your facilities to lean on, you know, the capacity and the expertise that you guys bring to the table. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes. So uh, on the operating side, obviously we have our own operating effort. Uh, some clients, some clients actually, interestingly, some clients prefer to bring in their own operating teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, it's our operating teams that are doing the maintenance, the operation of the machines. So in reality, it is like real estate or data center building, just with a different with a better payout schedule. Uh, so we have recently, our mining site has recently acquired an operations team. So in reality, we can even offer that as a product. So if if there is a potential client which is not looking immediately for hosting locations, but does need some some help on the operating side, we can always deploy our uh, team to go and help them out.
0: So are you seeing more demand on that? I mean, despite, you know, the, the merge last year for ETH going to proof of stake, are you still seeing uh, a lot of demand on the, on the mining side? And, you know, it looks like cash rates have kind of increased uh, dramatically over the last few months. So I'd imagine that that business has probably bottomed from where it was late last year when everybody was saying that the mining business model was dead.
1: It has so late last year because of all the Chapter 11s we've seen in the mining space, and uh, that comes naturally with fundraising at the, pool, at the, at the peak. I think yeah. the worst thing that happened last, uh, what that happened for those miners that were struggling last year, is entering into long-term uh, fixed contracts uh, of mining machines delivery at the peak prices because mining machine prices do are, are highly highly correlated with. Bitcoin price so as as we've seen last year Bitcoin has been uh, on a constant downturn and as that was happening the price of mining machines was going down however a lot of those a lot of those miners have that we had seen struggle last year had entered into hardware delivery contracts at the peak prices yeah. so as the market was declining they still were, contractually obliged to pay the bull market price. And on top of that, the funding rate was another concern. so some of those miners were paid, paying um, huge interest.
0: Sometimes timing is uh, definitely a, it can be a headwind or a tailwind. so um, but it's good to have uh, you know the type of diversification I'm sure you have with you know multiple operators uh, within your facilities that give you uh, more diversification and, and less kind of like specific risk
1: for us the timing worked out so we only launched the first facility we are, we own five uh locations in west texas uh the first facility with 35 megawatts was only launched in july last year so already As the bear market was already unrolling, we haven't entered any contracts at the bull market prices. We had basically launched the facility and then have been just waiting for talking to clients, onboarding clients. We have closed up full 35 megawatts capacity end of last year, early this year. So early this year, as of this year, 35 megawatts are fully onboarded. The reason it took half a year to onboard is because, as you said, mining industry was very, very slow end of last year. And that has a lot to do, actually, not bear market, but also combined with high electricity prices. Because if you look at the electricity prices, they were quoted quite high end of last year, going into the end of last year. And then beginning of this year, we have seen a decline in electricity prices, almost 50%.
0: Yeah, no, definitely a lot of macro factors, uh, not just crypto specific that influence the economics of a of a mining business. So um, hopefully, you know, seeing multiple cycles play out helps inform you as you're building your business and, and your strategy going forward and, and to help kind of Mitigate some of the volatility or the risk associated with that type of a strategy. So, um, I want to pivot back, if you don't mind, back to the quant strategy. So, you know, it seems like a relatively straightforward risk parameters and target return that you mentioned in terms of your stop loss and the the overall uh, hurdle rate that you're looking to achieve. But can you talk a little bit about how you guys are actually managing uh, assets more systematic than discretionary, if if I'm not mistaken, and and kind of the the new frontier of AI models that you guys are working on?
1: Absolutely. So on the asset management side at the moment, we're offering two quant strategies. Uh, These are not AI yet, Um, but our quant team has been working on AI models for the last Uh, two years now. So let me start with the quant side. The two strategies we are offering already are arbitrage and directional strategy. So arbitrage, we trade basis, perpetual basis. Uh, We also do deploy internally cross-market arbitrage, cross-currency arbitrage, Uh, but all all those types of arbitrage we are seeing around 10% per annum gross performance. plus minus a few percent. The one we offer to the clients is the basis trading, which is a very straightforward strategy. When there is a contengo effect in the market, when perps trade higher than spot, we would buy spot, sell futures and and reverse. Uh, it's fully algo. It's fully automated trading. So there's no, there's no discretionary trading whatsoever on our asset management side. It's a proprietary trading system that pulls data from exchanges to an API on the input processes the data, generates trade signals, and then on the output, it's also linked to exchanges through an API. Hmm. So our trading trading department does monitor the platform 24 uh, seven, but that's probably as much of traders' input as we have in our models. At the same time, the quants, they are constantly um, adding models to the system, constantly looking for more data sources to plug in. So I would say, um, when the human touch comes in is mostly on the quant side developing and upgrading the model the same goes to our directional strategy our directional strategy is a CTA type traditional finance strategy following basically the way it works it's also in a proprietary trading system the way it works is there's over 200 statistical models each statistical model looks at a different market indicator analyzes it historically and makes uh predictions generates trade signals only those uh, out of the 200 statistical models only those with the highest weight will be executed and the the, the stop loss of this strategy is at 15 percent we are targeting 50% return, but it's—I mean, it's—it's it's a great strategy for a market with a strong trend because uh, the CTA strategy looks at trend following and mean reversion signals. So, whenever there is a strong trend in the market, uh, either upside or downside, because we do trade curves, so we can look, go long short. It's basically a long short uh, algo strategy in different in different terms. So, in in a market with strong trends, the strategy performs quite well. Uh, um, and the worst type of environment for the strategy would be a sideways moving market with strong uh, hourly data volatility uh, in which case the strategy would just cut loss uh, pretty fast um, now that so that, those are the two quant trading strategies now the ai tra- trading strategy is quite exciting and it was it was quite surprising for us to see all the all the hype around ai uh, beginning of this year because our, our team has been working on it for, for quite a while now. And just talking to them, we haven't rolled out the product for clients yet, but we are planning to do so uh, by the end of this year. Uh, we have already deployed proprietary capital into this AI strategy that we that the Quant team has built out and we are generating live returns returns for now. Because obviously when you roll out the product, that testing does not really work for our type of investors. Everyone wants to see returns so that's what we're generating now um on the ai side it's quite similar so they have the 200 statistical models i mentioned before they have built uh over 10 million models
0: oh i mean sure happy to learn a little bit more about you know what that process looks like and and if you could kind of like contrast it to maybe the data sources or signals or inflection points that those models look at.
1: Absolutely. So let's go step-by-step of this AI training strategy building process. The strategy is directional as well. So it's looking at, on a very high level, it's looking at patterns in data and making predictions. Now, when breaking it down into steps, so the first step would be data sources, like what data sources does the Quant team use? Um, here we have market data. So they pull in, same as Quant strategy, uh, the strategy pulls market data from exchanges uh, through an API. And this type of data is mostly pricing data, uh, it's volumes data, it's the funding rate, uh, etc. So basically all the indicators you can find on exchanges. Um, the second type of data source would be on-chain data and uh, our Qan team gets it from existing data platforms so they have been they, they have tested and onboarded with a few of the big on-chain data providers and that's where they get such data as for example on-chain inflows outflows or some large transaction count um, if you open any of those data platforms you you would see the on-chain and indicators they all go for good use to add to the ai strategy um and then the final source of data would be sentiment data so sentiment data um, <clears throat> depending some providers build it out themselves code it down themselves some providers um, just uh, get information from other data platforms it could be existing data platforms as, as well <clears throat> and basically all of those are looking at social platforms, at Twitter, at Reddit, at Discord, uh, searching by a specific uh, indicator. So if you're looking at a specific coin sentiment, it would be looking at all the tweets or all the, all the posts containing that particular crypto coin and um, assigning some negative or positive parameters to some words that might be potentially in that embedded in that tweet and then deriving it, the general sentiment around that coin.
0: Oh, awesome. Does it look at macro data as well? Like I would imagine that, you know, the macro landscape yes. will impact sentiment which impacts flows and, you know, funding rates and all of the micro specific data, but is there any, you know, top down interest rate or any other type of macro data that goes into the models?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, especially given that that would fall into the market data category. So especially given the correlation with the risk on traditional risk on assets, um, the AI models do have S&P data, do have uh, the, the risk on asset Price data, volume data, embedded as well. It, it it actually sometimes it would improve the accuracy, prediction accuracy of the model.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see how this is all built out and and you know kind of embedded a little bit in what you said at the beginning is uh, you know developers leads to hype and then hype leads to uh, actually implementing strategies and so um, you know it's good to see uh, that your team has been working on this for a while and starting to produce returns in the in in live you know production environments to then show to investors to hopefully unlock, you know, additional opportunities for your current and potentially new LPs as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though, I, th- I guess my point would be that, even though we've only heard the high beginning of this year, teams have been working on it for for years and years and there are some teams that are rolling out amazing products like even even the chat GPT and uh, and and the mid journeys of the world they didn't only come out beginning of this year there have been teams that had been working on it for years now and the, the, the interesting thing with AI the way the way the strategies make prediction just just to wrap up <laughs> my story the, the way they make predictions is different from the quant uh, strategies so there there are two considerations one is learning from the future and actually this was the concept that when i was talking to our quants i found it quite interesting the second part would be learning from an expert so there's two ways one is plugging in data into an an ai and then ai at a particular point in time say january 1 2019 it would make a prediction and then it looks at a specific timeline later so looks one week later and learns where its prediction was correct. So that is the concept of learning from the future. Um, And another concept would be learning from an expert. And that is actually where discretionary trading might potentially tie in. So if you have a, a genius trader, human trader, you might embed his decisions into the AI, in which case AI would try to beat him. So AI would first, given a specific, given a certain amount of data is provided, um, the AI would try to understand how that particular trader, how that particular expert made his decision and then try to reverse engineer it and embed it in its own decision-making process.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and the beauty of, you know, some of the on-chain data providers that you mentioned tag, you know, large whale accounts. And so being able to follow and predict uh, those types of strategies from an AI perspective um, and unpacking, you know, what worked and what didn't and following those I'm sure is tremendously valuable for uh, creating the models themselves, being able to actually track the flows of individual accounts and, you know, find ways to beat and or mimic, you know, those types of strategies.
1: So the AI would make the decision in the end, right? If it finds that it's, specific data indicators might either improve or actually decrease the accuracy of prediction. So if the AI sees that particular inflow-outflow data or particular uh, transaction count data uh, improves the strategy, it would deploy those. So like I mentioned before, the number I mentioned before, that 10 million models developed, think of them as uh, 10 million employees. Mm -hmm. That's a bit difficult to think of, but some of them will be better performers, some of them will be worst performers. So the pool that we are using for for the actual strategy that is running capital um, is only a few hundreds. So out of the 10 million models, it's only a few hundred actually contributing to decision-making. So the pool is actually much more limited than the whole universe of tested models. And basically that's what our quant team does. They just constantly build new new models and see if adding them to the pool would improve the accuracy of predictions.
0: That makes sense, yeah. And then so you layer a zero uh, multiplier on every other model that would not contribute towards that strategy and just weight heavily the 200 or so that make the cut, if you will. So very interesting. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to walk us through all that JKL is up to. Uh, It sounds like quite a diverse portfolio from mining to venture to quant and AI strategies. So a lot that you offer to your investors. Um, any any other takeaways or closing thoughts before we let you go?
1: Yeah, I guess I guess just, just from the general sentiment right now, everyone is looking forward to the next bull run. There are some macro, uh, like you mentioned, there are some macro indicators that are impacting the defrost in the mining industry, like the uh, decreasing electricity prices. But at the same time, we, we all know that there is the halving cycle. Uh, Previously, uh, the problem is that the the historical data is not enough, we've only seen three uh, halving cycles so far that did coincide with bull runs does not necessarily mean that the next one will do so but there is a general sentiment that 2024 will be uh, a big year and everyone all the builders all the founders we're talking to are, are working towards it trying to predict what will be the next trends because the previous bull markets we have seen particular trend dominating the bull run whether it was NFTs whether it was GameFi uh, right now the question is whether it will be tokenization Um, because tokenization and specifically uh, liquidity providing for tokenized assets might unlock new capital, uh, right? If you provide liquidity to those NFT holders that have um, some some locked liquidity in their assets, that would provide new capital to the space. Uh, Building derivative markets around NFTs would unlock um, some new capital in the space, whether it will be like tokenizing traditional finance assets uh, whether it will be ai something completely different Uh, i think everyone is working on predicting what will be the next big thing and uh, i I don't i I will stay away from making any particular prediction even though i think from today's episode you've seen what I'm massively skewed towards Mm -hmm. so far. Um, But I think, yeah, I think the next year is going to be very dynamic, uh, interesting to watch in the the crypto space. And uh, let's hope that macro improves because for crypto to uh, really unlock its potential, uh, obviously, we have to see some macro improvements as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of the, narratives that have driven bull markets prior to this cycle have been kind of single threaded um, and it seems like there's still a ton of developer founder capital you know just going to the space and could be you know multiple different themes uh, that propel us to the next the next cycle but we're already seeing a lot of improvement in the space and as you saw on the ground in Hong Kong last week a lot of eager, excited and sophisticated people continuing to to build and so that uh definitely gives a lot of confidence for us in continuing to move forward in this industry and for all the listeners out there we really appreciate everybody tuning in uh listen and subscribe to compound thesis on youtube apple or spotify and you can find all of our episodes on youtube.com slash at compound labs um Alicia, if people want to get in touch with you how can they reach out
1: uh- Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, I'm mostly, uh, yeah, uh, Twitter, it's, I don't even know my handle. It's actually. all right. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not big on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> LinkedIn, it's lesia martinko at jkl group. Uh, that's quite easy. Uh, if not, lesia.m at jkl.group is my email. Uh, if you want to shoot any questions uh, or have any ideas on how we can work together.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm sure those that have not been able to write that down, reach out to me. I'll put you in touch. Leslie is fantastic. I'm sure you'll, everybody will benefit from connecting with her. Um, so thank you everybody for joining again. If you enjoyed today's show, share it with a friend and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again. Lestia.
1: Thank you.